the United States and the Soviet Union on a sheet of ice in Lake Placid, New York. Muller trying to turn. There's the left foot. What a tracking shot. Johnny Muller. If you see a 9-9, Olga Corbett's won a gold medal. There it is. Five seconds left in the game. Do you believe in miracles? Yes! Unbelievable. You're listening to a podcast from Key Moments in Cold War Sports History, an online archive series showcasing the work of expert historians. I'm Vince Hunt and I'll be hosting the series, asking each guest to choose an important document or artefact they think is of great significance in the Cold War sports arena. Was a 1980s women's tennis competition the catalyst for the Velvet Revolution in Czechoslovakia? Is sport, or perhaps a sporting personality, capable of political change? The answer, as far as my next guest is concerned, is yes. The event in question is the 1986 Federation Cup in Prague, and the sporting personality is Martina Navratilova, a Czech-born tennis player who, having defected to the US, returns to her home country for the first time, but playing for the US team. The impact she made was seismic and profound. Jane Brown Grimes is a US tennis administrator at the highest level, and now an historian of the Cold War. Jane, tell me about this event. You, you were there, weren't you? I was there. I was, at the time, managing director of women's professional tennis, and that allowed me to go to the event in Prague in July of 1986. And of all my many, many years in tennis, this event was by far the most uh, moving, exciting, important. Uh, and everyone knew that this was a very, very special time. Uh, it, it was remarkable to see Martina land uh, at the airport in Prague and get overwhelmed by the press, and then eventually to walk onto center court and the crowd cheering her. Uh, she, of course, had no idea what the reception was going to be and was very nervous. Uh, you know, she'd left and defected and had been a non-person in the country for all those years, and so she really wasn't sure what the reception was going to be. And one of the things that I love about your piece is not only is it hugely moving, it's almost a collection of quotes from the the people who were there. And when I looked up your sources on this paper (laughs) that you presented at the conference in New York, at the top, M. Navratilova. Yes, she's been very generous and very... um Helpful. I mean, I've known her for years, so it wasn't a difficult thing. And I went down and spent a day with her in Miami, and she couldn't have been more forthcoming. And as I wrote the paper, uh, you know, I have her her private phone, and I would call her, and she'd be, I'd say, where are you, Martina? And she'd be somewhere in the world, but she'd give me a quick answer to whatever the research question was. So she's been, she has been tremendous. And I guess one of my feelings is that because tennis is not a mega sport. It's not the Olympics. It's not football. It's not um, ice hockey, which are some of the big Cold War sports. It's been a little overlooked in terms of the research uh, of this conference, sport during the Cold War. And yet, I think this event that she was such a major player in is was really a big a big story in the Cold War and um, should should be given its due. And so that's really what I'm trying to do here. So tell me first about Navratilova uh, as a young girl, because that sets the whole scene, doesn't it? Yes, it does. I mean, she grew up in a small town just on the outskirts of 
Prague. And, you know, she from the start, she was a great athlete. She was better than the boys in her neighborhood at football and ice hockey. But by the time she was 10, she was totally committed to tennis. And one of the problems of playing tennis in Czechoslovakia is that they have long, cold winters. And during the Cold War, there really were almost no indoor facilities. And uh, her stepfather, who she grew up with, um, took her for a audition. And she hit a couple of balls, and the coach said, she can be part of my program. So she was able to, to be coached indoors uh, once a week uh, in Prague, which really let her get better at her game. And uh, the coach was a good guy, George Parma, and he kept telling her, look, you're going to be good, but you really have to work hard because tennis is going to be the way you're going to be allowed to travel. Uh, you, you're not going to be able to go west unless you really get to the top of the sport. And she really heard that and um, took it all the way. And by the time she was uh, 15 and 16, she'd been all over the Eastern Bloc, hadn't she? Well, all over the Eastern Bloc. And then at 16, she was unseated and had a bad cold. And she was playing in the Czech Nationals, the other best women, and she won it. Um, and that meant she really was the best in the country, which meant that she would be allowed to go west at that point, which was always the goal was to go west and to start to be able to play in, at Wimbledon and the French Open and, and even in the United States. So, yeah, by 16, she was a, a force. But at this point, she's, uh, she's one of the undisputed stars of, of Czech tennis, mm -hmm. but it's around this time that she makes the decision to defect. And how much of a big deal was this in terms of uh, a political defection? Was the Czech regime a hardline regime? The Czech regime was a hardline regime, and they were very, very wedded to Moscow, particularly in the 1970s, which is when she walked out. Uh, less so maybe in the 80s, but, but in the 70s, absolutely. And of course, their way of dealing with it was to go silent. They pretended that it was nothing at all. It was, it's been very hard for me to find anything, any reaction um, internally. In the U.S., it was sort of business as usual. Okay, she's from a communist country. She wants asylum here. We'll give it to her. You know, it was sort of business as usual They was the way they did it. I have to say she did it in New York during the U.S. Open in, in September of 1975. And the tennis press was all over it. I mean, she was surprised at what a big news it was for tennis. And she finally had to, had to call a, con a press conference because people were coming at her. And she did at, at Forest Hills, which was the club where the U.S. Open was being played. And there must have been well over 100, maybe more, reporters who were there asking her questions. And she insisted that the only reason she left was for the sport, that it was not political, had nothing to do with her feelings about um, the system, but it was also that she could have a chance to play her sport freely. But the response back in Czechoslovakia, as it was then, was that she became a non-person. She did become a non-person. And, for example, in the little club where she grew up and used to play, the posters of her were taken down. And uh, over the years, as she began to win her incredible nine Wimbledon singles titles. It wasn't reported. There was nothing in the newspapers. Uh, you know, I think the people knew there was certainly an underground thing. And, and for anyone who lived near the West German 
uh, border, they, they could get access to radio and other things, and then it would spread around the country. But really, you weren't allowed to mention her name, um, and it was, she was a non-person. Let's talk about the, the 1986 Federations Cup then in, uh, in Prague. This is an amazing moment in time, though, because uh, just looking at the, um, uh, the U.S. team and looking at the Czech team, mm. the, I mean, there's some legends of tennis there. And then if you throw in Navratilova going back to her home country. There was just a tremendous amount of human interest. I mean, it just the fact that she was going back meant that the international press were going to be all over this. And uh, it was phenomenal. There were probably three or four hundred people from around the world, and they were all, you know, allowed to come in. This, you know, the the Communist Party in Czechoslovakia was torn because uh, they wanted the world to see what a great country they were, what a beautiful stadium they had, what a gorgeous city Prague was. But along with that, that meant they had to let the press in, and more importantly, they had to let Martina in. And the combination of having the international press and this defector together in one tennis arena um, was really a combination that was going to cause problems for them because uh, they didn't dare clamp down on the crowd when they started cheering for Martina because the international press was watching. And uh, so it was sort of a chance for the audience to be allowed to express themselves in front of this very repressive government and get away with it, so to speak. I think it was about Wednesday or Thursday, the U.S. team came up against Italy in the quarterfinals, and Martina was scheduled to play Raffaella Reggie, a good, a good Italian player. Um, they walked down the court, and the umpires had been told from day one that they could not mention Martina's name. They simply had to introduce her as the woman player from the United States. And uh, so out they walked, and Raffaella Reggie was introduced uh, from Italy. And then when it came to Martina, it was the woman from the United States. And the crowd had just, they'd had it. And they started chanting in Czech, say her name, say her name. And it got louder and louder, and they wouldn't stop. And frankly, you couldn't start play. And Raffaella didn't know what was going on. She was upset. She thought they were booing her. And she, Martina beckoned her to come to the net. And the two of them stood there, and Martina explained what was happening. And Raffaella laughed and went back, and, and the umpire finally had to relent and say Martina Navratilova, and the crowd cheered, and um, the game began. But it was a moment because for all those years, 11 years, nobody could mention her name in that country. And then the crowd had forced this man in the chair to say it out loud on a microphone, Martina Navratilova. So it was a big moment. It's like a film script reading your book because, of course, then there's the dream final. That really was what everybody was hoping for. And, you know, it almost didn't happen. It came very close to not happening because there was one other team in the mix that was formidable, and that was West Germany. And a very young Steffi Graf was playing for West Germany. And that team was on the American side of the draw, and the U.S. had to play them in the semifinals. And frankly, Martina was more worried about them than she was even about the Czechs because uh, Steffi Graf had beaten her earlier in the year, uh, in April, and she was very, very concerned about that team. But maybe it was the fates, or I'm not sure what, but on a very gusty day, the day before they were to play, 
one of those sunbrellas blew over and over, and the big bass landed on Steffi Graf's toe and broke it. And Steffi had to withdraw from the event. And so the team, the West German team that ended up playing the Americans and Martina was without Steffi Graf, so it really wasn't much of a contest at all. Uh, so in fact, um, the dream final, which was the Americans against the Czechs, did happen on Sunday. And uh, of course, the one match out of that that was the most important was um, Martina, the number one player for the United States, against Hanna Monlikova, the number one player for Czechoslovakia, the girl who got away and the girl who stayed playing each other in this stadium in Prague. The crowd was really on tenderhooks and very, very excited. And I, I feel for, for Hanna, whom I interviewed at length for this piece, it was not a fun match for her. I mean, the crowd, her hometown crowd, were all for the defector, all for Martina. And from the first point to the last, they were cheering for Martina. And that, that's got to have been difficult for her. Um, and at the last point, the entire crowd stood up for spontaneous standing ovation at the end. Chris Everett dedicates the win to Navratilova. Yeah, um, Chrissy had the mic, and they, the Americans were supposed to respond. They were handed the trophy and supposed to respond, and Chrissy said, our team is dedicating this win to Martina. And she handed the microphone to Martina to respond. And Martina started talking in English, you know, because Chrissy had. And, but she only said about, I don't know, 10 words, and then she slipped into Czech. And the crowd went wild. And um, of course, I didn't know, nor did the other Americans in the stands know what she was saying. So I asked her and she said, I, I really just told them that I hoped it wasn't going to be another 11 years before I could play in front of them again. And I looked down the row from where I was sitting and her mother was about 10 seats away from me and the tears were just streaming down her mother's face. And here was her daughter you know, who'd gone through so much, and the separation had been tremendous, and she'd come back a, a real champion. And, of course, at that point, the entire Politburo stood up, turned around, and left the stadium. It was quite a moment, and, uh, and Martina stood there alone in, in this stadium with, with the crowd cheering for her. And it's this moment that you think really spelt the end of the, of the communist regime in Czechoslovakia. Well, I, I, I do, because... It's, it's quite clear to me that at the time she defected in 75, the crowd wouldn't have dared do that. There's no way, and your neighbors would have reported on you if you had shouted out for Martina. Um, and there would have been repercussions. Uh, but now, um, first of all, uh, Gorbachev was now in, in place in, in Moscow. Um, uh, perestroika had started. The atmosphere was changing. But more than anything, I think, the Communist Party in Czechoslovakia didn't have the same grip um, that they'd had earlier. Uh, I'm sure you recall that in 68, they, they called Moscow and Moscow sent in tanks, you know, to end the Prague Spring. That could never have happened now. And, and the crowds knew that. They, they could sense that the, you know, the, the cracks were coming, and this was an opportunity to really um, show their feelings about the system and how much they hated it. You know, I asked Martina, you know, do you think this, this was a, a seminal moment? And she said it was more as though it was, it added to a wave that was growing to get rid of the communist regime. And she said, I think it gave the people hope. 
I think it gave them something to cheer about. And she said, I think it really did add to this wave that was going to eventually crash over the Berlin Wall and did. So she said, looking back, I, I think it made a difference. And Navratilova herself became uh, a citizen of the of the later Czech Republic, didn't the she? Czech, yeah, in about 1991, 92, something like that. Yeah, she did. And, and she's very proud. She has both both passports. She considers herself an American first and foremost, but she loved Czechoslovakia. She loved her, the country she grew up in. And uh, she's proud of having both. And at first, the U.S. press kind of gave her a hard time and said, oh, you're turning your back on the country that took you in. And she said, absolutely not. I'm a, as strong an American as ever. And she said, I don't know why you all accepted the fact that, that Madeleine Albright was born in Czechoslovakia, became an American, and then went back and got a Czech Republic. She has both, and nobody made any fuss about her. So why are you giving me a hard time? But the long and short of it is that she has both, and she goes back and forth quite a bit. Her sister lives there, is married, and has a daughter, and she goes and visits them on a regular basis. And she's now recognized worldwide, not only for her tremendous tennis accomplishments, which I think are hard to match, but also for the contribution that she made at this time in helping her fellow Czechs to overthrow the communist regime that had been in place for so long. You've been listening to a podcast from the series Key Moments in Cold War Sports History, a project bringing together experts from around the world and hosted here on the Wilson Centre's online digital archive at digitalarchive.org. These podcasts are part of the project The Global History of Sport in the Cold War, which is sponsored by the National Endowment of the Humanities, directed by Professor Bob Edelman of UC San Diego, Professor Chris Young from the University of Cambridge, and Dr Christian Osterman of the Woodrow Wilson Centre, and run in collaboration with the German Historical Institute Moscow, the Jordan Centre for Advanced Russian Studies at New York University, and Pembroke College, University of Cambridge. The presenter is Vince Hunt and the series is produced by Vince Hunt and Laura Deal.